I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And that's in our study through this book, we're coming this morning to the third parenthetical warning passage in the book of Hebrews. The first was in chapter 2. It was a warning against hearing the gospel and drifting by. The second is in chapter 3. It's a warning against hearing the gospel and hardening your heart. And this third warning passage is against falling away. Specifically, it's spelled out in verses 4 to 6 of this chapter. Now let me say from the outset that this passage has stirred great controversy and a wide variety of interpretations. In fact, this is arguably the most difficult passage in the Bible to interpret. But I personally think that some of the problems that arise out of this passage are because we fail to see this passage in its context. It's so important in understanding a verse or a passage of Scripture to understand the context in which it is given. It's like the lady who wore her hair up in a bun, and when asked why she wore her hair up in a bun, she said, well, because the Bible says so. And somebody said, well, the Bible says so? And she said, yeah, the Bible says, top, not come down. Where does it say that? Matthew 24, 17, when they looked it up, it says, let those on the housetop not come down. See, what happens before and after a verse helps us understand that verse. And the theme of Hebrews is Christianity is superior to Judaism. Jesus Christ is greater than everyone and everything in the Old Testament. The prophets, the angels, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, the sacrifices. All through this book, there's this contrast between Christianity and Judaism. And this passage falls in that context. So this is a, not a passage comparing Christians with Christians. This is a passage comparing Christianity to Judaism. The issue in this passage is whether you are a Jew still holding on to the Old Covenant or whether you are a Christian who has laid hold of the New Covenant. And we're going to look at this passage in five parts. I've listed them in your bulletin. The first is the problem. Notice verse 1. It begins with the word, therefore. Therefore is looking back. And the problem we saw when we looked at chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, the problem is that instead of growing up, they were growing down. And they demonstrated five symptoms of spiritual anemia. They had a hearing problem in verse 11. They were dull of hearing. They had a maturity problem in verse 12. By this time, they should have been teachers, but instead they needed to go back to spiritual kindergarten. They had an appetite problem at the end of verse 12. They needed milk rather than meat. They had a dexterity problem in verse 13. They weren't accustomed. They weren't skilled in applying the word of righteousness. And they had a discernment problem in verse 14. Their senses were not trained to discern good from evil. Those are serious symptoms. They had a serious problem. You say, well, what is the solution? Well, the solution we see in verses 1 and 2. Notice verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. Now that word leaving is a strong word. It means to put off, to put away, to forsake. It's the word Jesus used in Matthew 9-2 when He said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are put away. The idea is that of complete and total separation. In fact, it's the word Paul used in 1 Corinthians 7-11 where he says that a husband should not leave his wife. It's the word used for divorce. And so what a husband is not to do in relation to his wife, we are told to do in Hebrews 6-1. And what is it that we are to divorce ourselves from? What is it that we are to put away? Well, he says in verse 1, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ or about the Messiah. Now that's synonymous with the phrase we saw back up in chapter 5 and verse 12, the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You see, he's talking in both cases about 
the ABCs about the Messiah, the, the baby book, the Old Testament pictures of the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the priesthood and the offerings, all the symbolism in the Old Testament is what he's talking about. He's saying, put that away and go on. Go on to what? Leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Now, some people say that he's talking here about a Christian leaving the basic teaching about Christ and going on to maturity. But let me just say, there is no such thing as leaving the basic truths about Christ and going on to maturity. If you leave the basics about Christ, you're not going to maturity. You're going in the wrong direction. Christianity is all about going back to the basics. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's why the Lord says we are to do this in remembrance of Him. What? Remember the cross, remember the cross, remember the cross. We never leave the basics of the Gospel. You say, well, it says we're to leave the elementary teachings about the Christ and press on to maturity. What does maturity mean? Well, that word is used of the idea of gradual development in growing up. We saw it used that way in chapter 5 and verse 14. But it's also a word that is translated in the Bible by the word perfection. In fact, look at chapter 7, verse 11. It says, now if perfection, that's our word, was through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to arise? Look at chapter 7, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. Same word. Look at chapter 10, and verse 14. For by one offering He has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. Same word. So this is a word that's used in Hebrews synonymously with salvation. So I would suggest to you that He is not here speaking to Christians saying, leave the basics of the Gospel and get mature. I think He's speaking to those who are professing to be Christians, but they're still holding on to Judaism. And He's saying, leave the Old Covenant and come to the New Covenant. Leave Judaism and come to Jesus. Leave the pictures and come to the person. In other words, the message is you need to get saved. And then he describes specifically what he means for them to leave. And he mentions six things in verses 1 and 2. And I want you to notice as we go through these six things that these are all Old Testament concepts. They're not incorrect. They're just incomplete. The first one in verse 1 is repentance from dead works. Now, dead works are simply works that bring death. Later in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, he talks about being cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. And so dead works are any kind of activity that does not serve God. So dead works are just a broad way to talk about sin. And if any message is clear in the Old Testament, it is that sin must be repented of. That's reiterated in the continual sacrifices that they had to give. You say, well, why would he say to leave that? Why would he say to leave repentance from sin? Well, because that's only half the message. In the New Testament, Paul describes his message this way in Acts 20, 21. He says, I am solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, repentance is not just turning from sin, it's turning to God. Or more specifically, it's not just turning from sin, it's turning to Christ. And that's why Paul or Peter could call it in Acts 11, 18, repentance unto life. You need to leave repentance from sin to the concept of repentance unto life. And then the second thing we're to leave in verse 1 is faith toward God. Now that's a basic truth in the Old Testament. But you know something? 
it's not enough to have faith in God. Everyone that this writer is addressing had faith in God, but some of them were not saved. When Jesus came, all the Jews in Palestine had faith in God, but guess what? They, re they rejected Jesus. That's why Jesus said this in John 14, 1. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. You believe in God, that's a given. That, that's basic Old Testament theology. You believe in God, but go beyond that and believe in me. You see, simple faith in God is incomplete. And Jesus spelled that out a few verses later in John chapter 14 and verse 6 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so the writer is saying, leave the simple Old Testament concept of faith in God and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then the third thing we're to leave is instruction about washings in verse 2. Now the King James translates this word baptisms, but it's not the Greek word baptizo. It's a different word. It's a word that's only used three times in the New Testament. The other two times it's translated washings. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10, the same word is used. And he talks about the fact that the ceremonies and the sacrifices of the Old Testament cannot make you perfect, verse 10, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings. That's the word. Regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. You see, every Jewish home had a basin of water in it. And that basin of water was set aside for ceremonial washings. They would wash their hands. They would wash their pots. They would wash their pans, not to make them clean, but to make them spiritually clean. That's why the Pharisees asked Jesus in Matthew 15 too, why don't your disciples wash their hands when they eat bread? Now that was not a hygiene issue. That was a ceremonial issue. That was a religious issue. We see the writer of Hebrews is telling us that that's just the ABCs. That's just the picture book. Those ceremonial washings are just preliminary and temporary. In fact, even the Old Testament predicted that one day the ceremonial cleansings would be replaced with a real cleansing, a spiritual washing. In Ezekiel 36.25, God says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. And Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 tells us that God saved us by the washing of regeneration. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, drop the external washings and come to the real washing that comes in your heart by faith in Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, he says, leave the laying on of hands in verse 2. Now this is not talking about the apostolic practice of laying on of hands. It's referring to the Old Testament practice of laying on of hands. If you read Leviticus chapter 1 and chapter 3, you'll find that when the people of Israel brought an animal from their flock to the tabernacle to be sacrificed, they were to lay their hands on the head of the bull or the goat or the lamb. And when they laid their hands on the head of that animal, they were saying in a symbolic way, I am identifying with the sacrifice. He is taking my place. And so the writer of Hebrews is simply saying, you have always laid your hands on the head of the animal that you were sacrificing. I want you to leave that and I want you to lay hold of the Lamb of God. I want you to identify with Jesus Christ as your sacrifice. And then the fifth thing he tells us to leave is also in verse 2, the resurrection of the dead. Now the doctrine of resurrection in the Old Testament is very undefined, it's very hazy. About all they knew that was that there was going to be life after death. Job made the most profound statement about resurrection in the Old Testament in Job 19.26 when he said, even after my skin is flayed, yet in my flesh I shall see 
God. Daniel kind of sums up the general understanding in the Old Testament. Daniel 12, 2, he said, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's about all they knew about resurrection. The good would receive a reward, the bad would receive judgment, and that's about it. You see, when you come to the New Testament, we find an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, describing the resurrection of our bodies. We find statements like 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 that says, when Jesus appears, we shall be like Him. In fact, you remember when Jesus was at the grave of Lazarus, He turned to Martha and He said, your brother shall rise again. Remember what Martha said? Martha said, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In other words, I've read the Old Testament. I know that in the end time, He's going to rise again. And Jesus responded this way. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. And then He asked her another question. Do you believe this? See, it's not enough to just believe that resurrection is a prophecy way down the road somewhere. Jesus says you've got to believe that resurrection is a person. I am the resurrection. And in the New Testament, it's not just a future event. It is a present reality because He gives us resurrection power right now. And then the sixth thing that we're to leave is in verse 2 as well at the end. It says eternal judgment. Solomon sums up the book of Ecclesiastes in the last two verses this way. He says, the conclusion is, fear God and keep His commandments because God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Someday, God's going to judge it all, the good and the bad. That's about all they knew. But when we come to the New Testament, we discover in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, these words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what? As a believer, my judgment is over. My judgment is past. I'm not waiting for a future day of judgment. I look back and realize that my judgment already took place on the cross of Calvary. And for unbelievers, John 5.22 tells us that all judgment has been given to the Son. And we understand in Matthew 25 that one day He is going to separate the sheep from the goats. And one day in Revelation chapter 20, all unbelievers will stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment. These things in verses 1 and 2 are Old Testament concepts. They're not untrue. They're just incomplete. The Old Testament is inspired by God. It is a necessary part of His revelation. It is a necessary part of the plan of salvation. But it is partial revelation only. And it is not sufficient in itself. Judaism is no longer a valid expression of worship or obedience to God. It must be abandoned. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, leave these things. Put them away and go on to perfection. Leave the Old Testament concept of repentance from dead works for repentance toward Christ. Leave the Old Testament concept of faith in God for faith in God manifest in the flesh. Leave the Old Testament concept of instructions about ceremonial washings for the reality of the cleansing of the soul by the Word. Leave the Old Testament concept of laying your hands on an animal sacrifice for laying hold of the Lamb of God. Leave the Old Testament concept of resurrection of the dead for full revelation of resurrection power in Jesus Christ. And leave the Old Testament concept of eternal judgment for the full truth of judgment and reward in Christ. You see, that's the solution. Leave these things and go on to salvation. 
And then the third point is the power. Notice verse 3. And this we shall do if God permits. Now, what is it that God, or what is it that we are going to do if God permits? Well, he may be referring back to chapter 5 and verse 11. If so, he's saying, if God permits, we're going to go on to some spiritual meat and you're going to be able to digest it. Or he may be referring to what he just said in verses 1 and 2, in which case he's saying, if God permits, we will leave the ABCs of the Old Testament and press on to perfection. Both are true. Because all aspects of spiritual progress are God-empowered. In fact, that phrase in verse 1, press on to maturity, is a passive verb, which implies that we are being moved to maturity by God. In fact, I found it interesting that the same word is used by Peter in 2 Peter 1.21 when he says that the prophets who spoke from God were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's interesting. What it tells me is that while spiritual growth is our responsibility and while spiritual growth is a command, beneath the whole process is God's power. Paul presents that balance in Philippians 2.12 when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He is the power. And then fourthly, we come to the warning in verses 4-8. to eight. Notice verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. That's a tough passage. There are four primary views on this passage. I just review them quickly with you. Number one is the view that these are Christians losing their salvation. Now, there are two problems with that view. Number one, the many clear biblical texts that teach that true believers cannot lose their salvation. And number two, if you take the position that this is a Christian losing his salvation, it says it's impossible to renew him again to repentance. So if you're going to take the position this is a Christian losing his salvation, you also have to take the position that once he loses it, he can never get it back. Now, some people try to explain that by saying this word impossible doesn't really mean impossible. It just means difficult. Well, the same word is used later in this chapter. Look at how it's used. Chapter 6 and verse 18. In order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Is it difficult for God to lie? No, it's impossible. Look a little further at chapter 10 and verse 4. Same word is used. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Is it difficult? No, it's impossible. Look at chapter 11 and verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Is it difficult to please God without faith? No, it's impossible. Second view of this passage is that these are genuine Christians who are simply losing their rewards. This is a position taken by Zane Hodges in the Bible Knowledge Commentary put out by Dallas Theological Seminary. Now let me just say that the problems with this position are too numerous for me to go into right now. But let me just put it this way. A person who falls away and crucifies again the Son of God, putting Him to open shame, and who cannot possibly be renewed to repentance is not a believer simply losing his rewards. Third position is the hypothetical view. And that view is that the writer is speaking to Christians about something that can't really happen And he's using it as a warning to press on. Charles Ryrie, the author of the Ryrie Study Bible, holds this view. 
He describes the position this way in his book, Basic Theology. The writer warns, since it is impossible to go back in the Christian life to start it over, but if one could, it would be necessary to fall away first in order to go back to the beginning. There are only two remaining options. Stay where you are in the state of immaturity or move forward to maturity. Did you get that? I didn't either. That's my first problem with this view. Every time I hear somebody explain it, I go, huh? And I say, well, why would the writer be trying to make a point in such a confusing fashion? Why would, he, why would he do it in such a convoluted way to twist it all around and say it's hypothetical? It's a warning, but it's hypothetical. Second problem I have is that the writer doesn't even hint at this being a hypothetical situation. Do you see in verse 4 where it says, suppose hypothetically that someone... No, verse 4 says, in the case of those who have... And then the third problem I have with this view is that a hypothetical warning is no warning at all. I mean, if it's impossible to do something, you don't need to warn me not to do it. Fourth view, that this warning is directed to those who are associated with the church. They have professed to be Christians. They fully understand the gospel, but they are not saved. And he is saying, when you have come up to the very edge of Christianity, you understand the gospel and then you fall away, you can never be saved. You'll never get back to that point again. It's kind of like a vaccination. What do they do when they vaccinate you? They give you a little of the illness, so you become immune to it. Well, some people have a little bit of Christianity, and they have become inoculated to Christianity. I want you to notice again the five things he mentions about these people. He says in verse 4, they have once been enlightened. That word means they have come to a perception of the truth. They are mentally aware of it. They have head knowledge. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 4, and verse 16, where, where when Jesus came, it says, the people in Galilee who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. When Jesus came, he essentially enlightened all of Galilee. They all saw the light of Christ. Were they all saved? No. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21 warns us, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away. Second thing it says about them in verse 4 is they tasted of the heavenly gift. Now what's the heavenly gift? Well, that could be the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the next phrase, so I don't think he's talking about the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul calls Christ God's indescribable gift in 2 Corinthians 9.15. He calls salvation the gift of God in Ephesians 2.8. And so I take what he's talking about here as salvation in Christ. Now what does it say they've done with salvation in Christ? Well, it doesn't say they drank. It doesn't say they ate. It says they tasted. They sampled. They're, they're like the spies in Kadesh Barnea. What did they do? They went into the land. They got some of their fruit. They tasted the fruit. But what? They refused to go into the land. Third, it says in verse 4, they're partakers of the Holy Spirit. That word partakers means associates. It's a word that means to participate in common with. It's a word used in Luke 5, 7 of fellow fishermen in another boat. Now, would you say that Christians are associates of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I bump into Him once in a while. No. The Bible tells us that Christians are born of the Spirit, sealed with the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, anointed with the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit, and filled with the Spirit. He's talking here about people who are associates 
with the Holy Spirit. The 5,000 people who ate the food He made were associates. Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 who saw the miracles and wanted to buy the Holy Spirit was an associate. Fourth, it says they tasted the good Word of God. They came to church and listened to the Word preached, but they just tasted it. They couldn't say like Jeremiah, Thy words were found and I ate them. And thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Herod tasted the Word of God. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 20, it says Herod used to enjoy listening to John the Baptist. Now that's an amazing statement. He used to enjoy listening to John the Baptist preach, but when push came to shove, he had John's head cut off. And then the fifth thing it says is that they have tasted of the powers of the age to come in verse 5. Now the age to come is the future kingdom of God. These people had been exposed to that power. Back in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4, it says that when the gospel came to them, they saw signs and wonders and miracles. But they only tasted. You say, well, Dan, can you taste a miracle and not be saved? Well, I would suggest that you read John chapter 11 and 12. Because it tells us there that some of those who witnessed the miracle of Lazarus rising from the dead responded by wanting to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. Amazing response to a miracle. The Gospels tell us that Judas performed miracles and cast out demons. He tasted the powers of the age to come, but he was not saved. Jesus said in Matthew 7.22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, Depart from me. I never do you? There are people who taste a lot of power and are never saved. And this passage is telling us that those that come that close and fall away, notice the end of verse 8, crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. They publicly take their place with those who crucify the Lord and they say in a sense, He deserved to die. You see, if you fall away at this point of total revelation, it is impossible to renew you again to repentance. It is hopeless. Because you are saying, Jesus was a fake. Jesus deserved to die. I take my stand with the crucifiers. Now look again at verses 4-6. to six. Do you see any of the normal terms used of Christians? Saved, justified, righteous, called, elect, believers, Christians, sons, redeemed, sanctified, adopted, chosen, bought, regenerated, Born again. None of those phrases are there. What we have is tasting, being enlightened. These are pre-salvation experiences. You say, well, Dan, are you sure that you've got that right? Well, I wouldn't die on that hill. But one of the things that confirms to me that this is the correct interpretation of this passage is the illustration that follows. And that's in verses 7 and 8. And I want you to notice that. He says, For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Simple illustration. The rain comes down on the whole earth. Some ground brings forth fruit. It is blessed. Other ground brings forth thorns. It is burned. What's the application? The grace of God, the gospel of God, falls on the earth. Everybody in this church in Hebrews chapter 6 heard the gospel. 
Some believed and bore fruit. Others rejected and brought forth nothing but thorns and briars. And then let me show you one other thing. Let's jump ahead to verse 9 real quick. Look at verse 9. It says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. Now mark that phrase. We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. That tells me the things he's been talking about are things that do not accompany salvation. He's been talking about pre-salvation experiences that these people experienced up to the point of commitment to Christ. And they never made that commitment of faith. And now they've fallen away. And he's saying it's impossible to get them back to that point of repentance. You know, as I look at this passage, I only see two options that we have in this passage. Verse 1 says you can press on. Verse 6 says you can fall away. I don't see any middle ground. I don't see any neutral territory. I don't see any place in here where it says you can also tread water in the Christian life. You either press on or you fall away. You either grow up or you're growing down. You're either bearing fruit or you're bearing thorns. And so as we close our service today, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're a person, you, you as a child made a commitment to Christ or sometime even as a young adult you made a commitment to Christ, but there's been no fruit in your life. As you look at your life, you see, well, there's a whole lot of thorns and thistles growing in my life, and yet I'm professing to be a believer in Jesus Christ. This warning is for you. This warning is to shake your world a little bit, to realize that you need to get serious about pressing on to salvation. Maybe you're not even saved, even though you say that you are. We're going to close our service today by having the praise team come back. I don't know how God has spoken to your heart today, but I'm going to call you, I'm going to invite you to get real with Him today, to get serious with Him today. If you'd like someone to pray with you, you can come down as we're singing. You can stay right in your seat and get real about committing your life afresh to Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we sing together in an attitude of prayer. I'd like to ask you to be seated for just a moment. And this is Laura Highbreder. Laura, turn around so they can see you. I've known Laura for years. She's coming uh, this morning to join our fellowship. And uh, I'm going to ask Dave, if you would, to, to walk Laura out to the lobby. And then after our service, I'll give you an opportunity to greet her and welcome her to our fellowship. Let's pray together. Father, we come today realizing that this is a passage that we probably wouldn't choose to delve into and teach if we weren't going through verse by verse in your word. It's a sober passage. It's a challenging passage. It's a serious passage. Father, as we struggle to understand it, we want to be faithful to you and what you're saying. And so, Father, we would pray for those sitting here today who may be professors but not possessors of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your Spirit and through the communication of your Word, that you might stir hearts, challenge them with the warning of turning away from the only one who has the answer of Jesus Christ, and draw each of us closer to Him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.